0: Good morning. So today's passage comes from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. It can be found on page 1103 in the Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's holy and inspired word.
1: Well, good morning, Faith Church. It's nice to be eight inches taller. I've always dreamed of such things. Yeah, as you you may recall, the plan was to take a break halfway through First Samuel, and so, Lord willing, we will finish it in the new year. Um, but right now, for the next two weeks, as some of you probably know, we're going to do a mini series. On Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to look at the final chapters of the Bible to gain a vision for our very, very bright future. Now, why spend time in these chapters? Well, think about this with me for just a moment. The one thing that unites people across all history and every culture is that we all suffer. All of us, whatever it might be. Maybe it's chronic pain or betrayal or disease or some form of persecution or grief or anxiety or job loss or financial instability or relational strain. The list, of course, goes on. We can create our own list. We all suffer, don't we? And situations like tornadoes that rip through our lives, they remind us, friends, we don't want band-aids, do we? We don't want escapes. We don't want frothy sentiments written on hallmark cards. We don't want false hopes. We want something permanent. We want something new. I think ultimately we want new hearts and new bodies and really a new world, don't we? That's why sometimes I think we wonder, is continuing on with God, is continuing on as a Christian through the suffering of this world, is it worthwhile? You know, in the Bible, God makes some pretty outrageous claims and promises. Here's one of them. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen carefully to what God promises us. He says through the apostle Paul, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Do You hear that? According to Paul, our current problems are light, tissue paper problems, cotton ball trials, right? How can Paul say this? Is he he so out of touch with reality? I mean, how can the glory of eternity make the suffering of death, losing your job, cancer, 55-plus million babies aborted in just our country, Since Roe v. Wade, how can whatever God has in store for eternity make those things not worth comparing? Is Paul out of his mind? Is he just kind of this insensitive jerk? We have to understand something though, friends. Paul isn't diminishing our suffering. He's magnifying the glory to come, isn't he? Friends, it will be so good. It will be so glorious. It will be so otherworldly. This life is hard, isn't it? But the best is yet to come. Do you believe that? Yes. Do you believe that? Yes. For the next two weeks, I want to behold with you this incomparable, eternal weight of glory. Glory. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Here's the main point of this sermon. You'll see it on your screen. You'll see it in your notes. Here it is. While you suffer, Christian, cling to God's rock-solid claim that he will make all things new. I'll say it again. While you suffer in this life, in this world, cling to God's rock-solid promise that he will make all things new. And we're stepping into a very complicated book, but I'm kind of cheating I'm skipping most of the crazy stuff, and we're going to just get to the thrilling stuff, okay? so, <laughs> And, you know, the audience of Revelation is these seven churches in Asia Minor. You can see that in the first couple chapters, and they had this in common with us. They were suffering too. They were persecuted. They were struggling to cling to Christ as well. And so that's why God is kind of pressing this vision upon them as if we're getting to the end of this book. And here's the breakdown of what we're gonna see in these eight verses. First, we're gonna see the new creation, then we're gonna hear about the new creation, then finally, we're gonna we're gonna explore what it looks like to relate to the new creation. So, what does John, first of all, see in the new creation? Leave verses one and two. Then, okay, let's stop there for just a second. What has happened so far? Well, a lot of things have happened so far. We're gonna quickly summarize, okay? The the apostle John has had this dramatic apocalyptic vision where he sees the future and he sees God preserving the church in the midst of all kinds of suffering and trouble as the forces of evil are starting to grow in influence and power and impact. So it's a pretty dramatic vision or a series of visions that he's been having. And most recently in chapters 19 and 20, he's seen King Jesus finally return to defeat and to destroy the satanic trinity. Do you know there's a satanic trinity? The beast, the dragon, and the false prophet. And so now those guys are all cast aside into the lake of fire. Now King Jesus and his bride are ready for something different. So what does John see about this new creation? Look again at verse 1 and 2. First of all, in verse 1, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. In verse 2, he sees this kind of city bride that's coming down. So, friends, this is the new creation that he sees. And it's been prophesied several times in the book of Isaiah in particular. And so, the reason I'm saying that is because this is the great hope of God's people. They've been waiting for this. We've been waiting for this, right? Not something that's just a little better. Not something that's just mostly better. Friends, something that is new, Something that is utterly glorious. That's what we're waiting for, right? Something so incredible, in fact, that there won't be any more sea. Do you see that? I know every fisherman and surfer and water lover like myself in the room is a little annoyed by this. I mean, is this talking about large bodies of H2O? Actually, that's not the case. This is apocalyptic language. I think there will be water in the new creation, just to be clear. So what's going on here? Well, the sea in ancient Hebraic thought stood for chaos and evil. The beast, earlier in Revelation, came out of the sea. The kaiju-like monsters in Daniel chapter 7 came out of the sea. And in Job, the Leviathan, representing Satan, came out of the sea. And so no sea means that in the new creation, nothing evil will arise to infiltrate the pristine and pure new creation that God has for us. Hear me now, friends, this is important. God will finally and forever cut off the root of evil. You hear that? Your future life on this new earth will never be threatened. No evil, no sin, no entangling problems, no natural disasters, no wicked distractions, no sinister interruptions. Friends, what if I said to you that for the next 12 months, not one iota of evil or sin would impact your life? Imagine that experience. Imagine the the freedom and the joy that you would have for those 12 months. Well, friends, this will be our only and forever experience in the new creation. The toxic fountain from which all evil erupts will be permanently destroyed. And verse 2 tells us that something from this new heaven will permanently touch this new earth. Notice John sees kind of these two interwoven pictures of Holy city, which is a bride. Do you see that? A holy city, which is a bride. So, the new city, uh, the new creation, excuse me, that dawns, first of all, is a city, a holy city, unvarnished of sin, dedicated to God. You know, in the beginning, God planted a garden for humanity to live in. In the end, He will give us a city, a glorious city. And this city stands in contrast to what we've seen earlier in Revelation, which was Babylon, this detestable prostitute. And we see Babylon in Revelation representing a worldliness, a a perversion of what God wants, a, a city that worships itself instead of worshiping God. Think about the ancient builders of Babel or Babylon, Genesis chapter 11. Do you remember this story? they saw the people of this city, they, they, they were trying to join earth to heaven with kind of this self-deifying pride. They figured they could touch God with their own building. John sees, notice, the new Jerusalem which comes from God and truly joins heaven to earth, right? Brothers and sisters, your future hope is not something that you can build or buy. It's something you can receive freely out of sheer divine mercy, In the prior chapters in Revelation, we saw Babylon fall so that this new Jerusalem can kind of replace her because God's heavenly city, what does it do? It brings life and joy and salvation to his people while Babylon defaced the world and dehumanized others. Many ways we feel like we're living in Babylon today, right? This is not our home. This world, I mean, the people, it's just too much like the people of the Tower of Babel. And that's why we long for the city of God, don't we? We long for it. But this city, notice, is also a bride. Now, uh, It's, it's a city and bride. So, So is the New Jerusalem a place or a people? Well, the answer is yes. See, all of the above, right? The new creation is like a grand city with with all of the beauty and excitement sparked by kind of a bustling metropolis, and yet the new creation means the formation of a new people, a radiant, perfect, beautified bride. Jenny and I celebrated our 14th wedding anniversary this past Monday, and we had a lot of fun. We watched our wedding video with our four kids. And uh, just the the commentary, you know, if I could take some time, if this was not a sermon, uh, you would enjoy that, I'm sure. And it, and it reminded me as I'm thinking about Jenny in particular and, and how amazing she looked. It, it reminded me that brides look their best on their wedding day, don't they? And they work so hard. I mean, it's surprising to think how much effort goes into kind of preparing the bride. You know, the, the fellows are sleeping and what is she doing at O Dark Hundred? She's getting ready, Right. And, and it got, like, takes all day, and then it, you get to the end, and then the, like, the doors open, and then finally you see the bride coming. She wants to look her best for her husband. And friends, so it is with this shining city made up of God's people. So I, I wonder if you make that connection. We, we are part of this new creation. We are part of this. is such good news, right? We are part of this new creation. The new creation isn't just a new world; it's a new us. It's not just that you get to go visit the Biltmore Estates. It's someone saying to you, "You're now elevated to the status of owning the Biltmore Estates." Here's the keys. You're part of this. You know, Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation, according to the Apostle. Paul. And so, we're united to Christ by faith, and we become part of that new creation as well. So, so we shouldn't be surprised to hear the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians state, listen to these words, if anyone is in Christ, he is a... (laughs) The old is gone, the new has come. It's the same language that we see here. In a sense, the new creation begins in an inaugurated way, a germinal way in our souls when the Holy Spirit makes us alive. A little pebble is taken from the new creation, brought back into the present world and placed in our hearts, and it starts to grow, the new creation life. And so all Christians together, right, spanning across the geographical expanse of the nations, but also spanning across the chronological expanse of the generations, all of us together are part of this new creation bride, coming down the aisle to the bridegroom. So friends, may I ask you this? Have you been hurt by some form of impurity or ugliness in this life? Some desecration upon your soul? Some unholy abuse? Some painful injustice? Something someone has done perhaps to you or, and this is hard to think about, maybe something you have done to other people, whatever it is, it is painful, isn't it? But then consider verses one and two again. God will bring his stunning and permanent purity and cleanness into this future new creation. So brothers and sisters, if you trust God, if you can cling to Christ, hang on to Jesus for dear life to reach the celestial city, No defilement awaits you there. No shameful snares, no evil plots, no unexpected pits for you to fall into. It will only be pure and clean and holy for you. And there will be no sea from which the serpents can arise. I can think of horrible things people have done to missionaries over the centuries. Uh, Stories of missionaries being forced to ingest human excrement, women like Helen Rosevear being violated, atrocities happening to children. But friends, we, the people of God, we have hope, right? One of these days, the tide is going to change. There's coming a day that's, it's not just kind of a new set of circumstances, a new season, but a new creation. And the unassailable purity and beauty of this new creation can give us the kind of hope required today to persevere another day just to take one more step forward. This is what John sees. This is what we see in these verses. Now, let's look at what John hears about the new creation, verses three through five. So he's seen a lot. In fact, this is the end of a very long series of visions for John, and the whole thing has been pretty overwhelming for him. And so there are these kind of moments punctuating the book of Revelation where an angel or sometimes God himself clarifies what's going on. Now, that's to kind of interpret further For John what he has seen. So now he hears this loud voice. You see that? And this is probably one of the great angels of God speaking to him. Angels have been speaking to him for several chapters now. Now, what does his angel say about this new creation? What else is new about it? Well, notice, God's presence completely infuses and redefines everything about it. This is covenant language. Look at verse 3 with me. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. So God is fulfilling his promises to his people. Now that word dwell, in the Greek, it's literally tent, so in the Old Testament, God dwelt with his people in this tent, in this tabernacle, right? And, 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 but only the priests could kind of get in. And so the people were on the outside. There were these boundaries for the people. They were on the outside kind of looking in. And when Jesus came, what does John, the same guy here, John, what does he say about Jesus coming? John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Same word, tabernacle, tent. So God's back. Here's Jesus, Right? but we know it's only for a season. Where's God right now? Well, we would say he's in his people by the spirit, he's in the church, but it's still not the fullness of his presence, is it? That's in this new creation. That's what we see here. You know, I think there's some things we forget as Christians sometimes. I think sometimes we forget that, uh, sometimes we forget what our salvation is for and what repentant humanity is being restored to. What is the goal of our creational existence? What are we being saved for? It's to dwell with God and his people forever in perfection and glory, right? That's the goal of the whole thing. This is where we're heading. And this is the driving ambition of salvation. Listen, the promise of salvation is not just a better you. It's not just more self-satisfaction. It's not just reunions with our loved ones and that will be awesome. It's not just the absence of evil. The greatest gift of salvation is God himself. You will have God. That's the point of salvation. Listen to how the Christians or God's people exult in this reality. Psalm 43, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I mean, people don't talk like the city boy, right? Psalm 16, in your presence, His fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's not just joys beside him or joys around him, but above it all, it's joy in God. His presence is paradise, friends. So if you were to go to this new creation and you had all of the the good stuff, all of the fun stuff, no tears, no pain, the full human capacities of a new resurrection body and all of your loved ones and friends were there and there was no more sin even, but Jesus was not there. Would that place be paradise? No. (laughs) Maybe it'd be better for us to think about the who of heaven rather than the what of heaven. John Piper helpfully summarizes, he says this, the gospel of Jesus isn't a way to get people to heaven, it's a way to get people to God. So you have God in this new creation, but there's more, look at verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away we can hardly imagine this world, right? A world without sadness and shadows, a world without cursing and cancer, a world without depression and death, a world without tornadoes and Tylenol. And perhaps you've wondered, and I've wondered this for a long time, why would God need to wipe away our tears if there's no more crying or pain or grief? Well, here's what I think. I believe the tears that God will wipe away are from the sorrows of the past. I believe that our memories won't be wiped out. We'll remember our sins. We will remember other people's sins against us. We will remember the pains of this life. And so what this verse promises is that God himself, God himself will comfort his people and remove the sorrows of sins past. Imagine that. He's not only going to protect you from sin and evil within this new creation, he's going to comfort you from the sins and pains of the past. These are the tears he will wipe away. We live in a world of inconsolable things, don't we? We've all got wounds that linger. We feel some heaviness within the deep recesses of our memories. And as we recall certain events, bad moves, a change in circumstances, a grievous sin, a life-changing disaster. I mean, will the pain ever go away? Will I ever not feel this? Maybe it kind of grows dull over time, but it's always there, like a small ache, like a little splinter in your soul. Those tears, those tears, every single one of those tears, God will wipe away. Brothers and sisters, let me invite you to find in this future hope the very resolution that you so long to all those tensions in your life. There will be comfort for every sorrow. There will be healing from every disaster. There will be consolation that swallows up every disappointment. There will be resolution between every brother and sister that's unreconciled. God's comfort will be greater than every pain. And he will make this new creation in such a way that nothing will ever harm you again. That good news. Notice verse 5. John hears more. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He, he also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. This time it's not the angel who speaks, right? This time it's God himself, the one on the throne who's speaking, like kind of this, the final riveting words from a great speech, not only summarizing, but, but inspiring and elevating and energizing and clarifying. God himself tells John what is up. I am making everything new, not some things, not most things, not just the hardest of things, It includes even the most minor injustices. All things, friends, all things will be made new by God. Then he said, the Alpha and Omega said, notice, it is done. What is done? What's done here? Well, I think this is the moment right here, uh, which is really the climax of all history. This is kind of a mic drop moment for God. Everything that God has ever promised, every bold claim that he has ever made, in this moment, he makes good on it all. It all comes kind of to a riveting conclusion right here. And God's like, hey, here it is. It's as if God is saying at the end of things, he's saying to the church, dear church, my precious, courageous, suffering, faithful people, my bride, now holy and blameless and ready, look what I have prepared for you. Here is your eternal weight of glory. I told you, I told you, and you trusted me, and here we are. So John sees and he hears. Let's look at these final few verses for the last few minutes. We're together. We see what it looks like to relate to this new creation. So God's speech kind of continues, and we hear more from God. And we'll notice in these verses, verses 6, kind of the second half of 6 into verse 8, will see two groups of people. See if you can see these two groups of people as I read. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the springs of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Two groups of people. One is made up of those who have quenched their thirst in God. Notice verse 6. The other is made up of those who are trying to quench their thirst in everything but God. All the wrong places. And you'll see a list in verse 8. God offers, offers all of us spiritual drinks, spiritual food that will satisfy. And the thirsty can drink freely without any payments it's free. There are those who drink from God and there are those who drink from other sources. Two groups of people. One is full of conquerors. Notice the language in verse 7. The other is full of cowards. Notice the language in verse 8. Those who hold on to Christ for dear life through the the pain, the suffering, the confusion, the injustice, the persecution, the gut punches that we receive they, that group of people will inherit this new creation and they will have God as their father. That's God's rock solid claim. You know, in this world, this world we live in now, we inherit something when someone dies, right? But in the new creation, we inherit something when we come alive and God doesn't go away. He's with us. Interesting, right? But then there's this other group of people. Isn't it interesting that God's list of vices begins with cowards? Why is that? The rest, rest of the stuff here, the vices here, we've seen before in the New Testament, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. What's coward all about? Well, in the face of suffering and cultural pressure and persecution, the greatest test to your faith and mine is spiritual cowardice. This is what the church, the early church, faced as well. God knows this, and so he's, he's trying to entice and warn these seven churches, trying to entice and warn us today, the new creation is far, far, far better than anything this world has to offer, and hell, this lake of fire, is far, far worse than you could ever imagine. For it's not only the beast and the false prophet and the devil and death and Hades that are cast into this lake of eternal fire, it's also those that are marked by persistent sin and rejection of God and his ways. Some will experience God as their father in this new creation. Others will experience God as their enemy and judge in this lake of fire. So the stakes are high, right? Incredibly high. If you're not a Christian here this morning, welcome to Faith Church. Uh, We are glad you're here. And we're talking about the lake of fire today, right? (laughs) Well, let me ask you a question. Can you imagine something? Can you imagine anything, anything that is better than the new creation that this passage offers? What could you conjure up that is better than what you see in this passage? What more could you want? Is what draws you away from God really better than what you see here? The stakes are so high for you, friend. You won't have Christ as Savior in this life. You will have Christ as judge in the next life. So I want to plead with you this morning. Come to Christ. I want to plead with you to consider Jesus, to repent of your sins, break off your allegiance with the world or with yourself, and to turn and face Jesus, the one who offers you living water. Would you do that today? Let me close with three applications for the church. Here's the first. First application is to develop a taste for the water of life. To develop a taste for the water of life. You know, the astonishing thing about what is promised in the new creation in full, it's also promised by Jesus in the old creation in our world in part, right? So remember Jesus with the thirsty Samaritan adulteress, John chapter four, he offered her living water, right? And he offers that to us as well. Water that will truly quench our thirst. Maybe it's just a small little cup's worth in the old creation, but it's something, right? And friends, what we sip in the present desert, we will one day gulp down in the future garden. The point I'm trying to make is this. We ought to be developing a liking to the water. We ought to be developing a taste for the water because a little morsel now will make you groan for the feast to come, right? So train yourself to drink of Christ, drink deeply of Christ. Each day, uh, George Mueller said it well. He said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord Jesus. There it is. Number two, hang on to Christ for dear life. Hang on to Christ for dear life. The The proof of your genuine conversion is not that you said some prayer 20 years ago or walk down some aisle, or seem to feel bad about your sin that one time, the proof is in your perseverance. Not your perfection, but your perseverance. A life of repentance and spiritual growth and perseverance. Notice the language here. The one who conquers is the one who will inherit these things, right? And of course, this kind of conquering that God has in mind isn't violent or physical or political in nature. This is a sort of spiritual conquering. And what this means at a more practical level is this. When life or other people or your own folly or sin pushes you to that mental state that that you want to kind of flee from Jesus, it's at that very moment you have to do the very opposite. The Christian life is essentially learning to flee to Christ over the course of a thousand moments of temptation. Maybe you're going to encounter one this week. You're going to run to Christ. You're going to run away from Christ. Number three, finally, regularly revisit this vision of the new creation. Can you imagine the first 20 minutes after this vision wrapped up and he kind of comes to his senses? And John's like on Patmos and he's like, oh, wow, okay. I mean, he's got to write some things down. God told him to do that, right? So we can have this book in front of us, okay. But it must have had this like profound and visceral impact on this man, right? How could it not? I mean, he was an old man when this occurred, uh, but those last days for him must have been so sweet as he had this vision of what would soon be his. Well, friends, we're not John, but we must find ways to keep this vision fresh and in front of us. And so maybe it's meditating on a passage like this or singing hymns that kind of speak to this or maybe it's books about God's future glory. What will stir you up What will stir your hope and eagerness and hunger for this new world? Ultimately, we know we don't quite belong here. I think there's a little voice in our heads that we sometimes hear. You know, the place you belong, it's not a place you've actually been to yet. None of us have truly been home. The new creation will be that home. In C.S. Lewis's final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, it's, it's a book that depicts much of what occurs in the book of Revelations so of the final judgments and destruction of the old Narnia. And finally, all the characters are kind of lined up and they come into this new Narnia. It's a great scene. And they're all trying to figure out what is this like new creation? What is this new Narnia? And they have this strange sense. This, this all seems so familiar to us. And, and, and so then at the end, you know, they're trying to make sense of things, but nobody can make sense of things. And then the unicorn finally speaks up. It was the unicorn that kind of summed up what everyone was feeling. It cried out, and it tosses its head, it neighs, and it cried out, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for for all my life though I never knew it till now. And then he turns to the other animals and he says, come further up, come further in, come further up, come further in. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.